you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey y'all, a couple things that you're probably going to notice as you listen to this week's episode. We make a couple references to a text that we have not yet released the episode on. We recorded that one earlier, but we haven't put it out yet because we're currently getting some new music and I want to use some of it for that episode. So when we talk about Luprand of Cremona, we'll, we'll put it out soon. It's coming. Also, there are some points where it's really obvious that several months have passed since when I went through this text and marked it up, and when I'm reading it now, because I'm frequently surprised at what the next sentence is as I'm going. So, I apologize for that bit of unpreparedness. Anyway, here we go. Our text today, we are finally going back to, and I'm going to try and get this name right, Xuanzang. Yes. I, th- I think it's close. Honestly, the way I remember it is it sounds kind of like swan song, so I'm not sure how much I'm mutilating it in making it more like that word. We will forgive these pronunciations. Mandarin is very, very difficult for English speakers. Plus, I'm I'm tone deaf, so like I'm, it, tonal languages are are difficult. Fair. But remind us what the actual text is. Okay, so... The text is called the Great Tang Dynasty Records of the Western Regions. And what it is, is this guy, Xuanzang, went on a pilgrimage to retrieve uh, manuscripts from India because he was a devout Buddhist and he wanted to get a hold of Buddhist texts they didn't have in China, translate them, and bring them back to the Chinese Buddhist community. This was made difficult because at the time China was, I guess, having like an isolationist phase so he had to basically sneak out of the country and that's also why no one else is really aware of what's going on out there so he spent something like 20 years traveling around india and other parts of asia west of china and when he got back he wrote down all of the places he'd been to and all of these stories he'd heard and all of the stuff he'd seen and that's the book we have now and this is like early medieval period i think i think we're in the seventh century So if you want some European context, uh, the rise of Islam is in full swing. Important births include St. Cuthbert. Important deaths include Isidore of Seville. That's during uh, the whole period where our our man here is traveling around India. And another reason I wanted to make sure to read more of him as soon as possible is I looked on our Podbean stats to see, like, what episodes were the most popular. Mm -hmm. And... Obviously, most of them are episodes from October, because new listeners are going to listen to our first episodes. Yeah. And two of the other ones are the Saga of Eric the Red, because a lot of our listeners come from Saga things, so obviously they're into mm-hmm. that. Woo woo. So the, the only two that I didn't have an explanation for were Macdetho's Pig, people like that one, <laughs> and our first episode on the Tong Records. There we go. And I'm curious to see if people are just, like, really interested in this aspect of the medieval world that we don't get a lot of in, like, Western education systems. Or, and this is something I also think is possible, if a lot of people coming to the podcast for the first time listen to that episode first because the title is Dick in a Box. (laughs) 
both both are valid sentiments. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna, I, I wanted to put out another episode on this text to see if it was equally popular or if it was just the title. Uh, a good experiment here. I think that's interesting because Mac, Macdetho's pig is sort of weird and in the sense that it's not something you'd expect from the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with, with these records. It's something outside of what you generally consider of, about European medieval context. And so I think it does spark the imagination in terms of, you know, what is actually going on, you know, outside of quote unquote civilization at that time, right. or at least med- like the medieval world as, as people generally like to think about it. It's weird to think of how we have that impression because from the perspective of the majority of the people on the Eurasian continent, <laughs> Europe is this peninsula where a bunch of barbarians live and they're not really relevant to anything else. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're going they're going through this dark age, you know, it's mm-hmm. a after Rome fell, people over in like India and and China did not care what was going on there. Like this was the like one of the coolest things about late antiquity to me is the Byzantine Empire itself because when you start learning about like what Macedonia is doing and what the Byzantine Empire is doing, they have such a rich culture mm-hmm. and then the rest of Europe, and you know, it depends on whether you want to talk about Byzantine as or Byzantium as being a part of Europe at the time or not, because it's sort of on that line where it's yeah. still sort of Near East. I, but I think of the it rest as like a Europe neither is, fish nor fowl thing, where it's like it's not yeah. Asian and it's not European and it's not African; it's its own thing. Yeah, it's Near East, you know, Middle East, whatever you want to call it in there. And then, like, the rest of Europe isn't doing anything. And I was so thankful that I took a course on Byzantium in in my first year of undergrad. And it totally changed my perspective on how I wanted to look at medieval studies the rest of that time. Awesome. So I just, I love it. So going into this stuff, I'm really excited about it. So let's go. Yes. It's weird that we have this perspective of Europe because from the perspective of our author here, he would think of everyone in Europe the same way that people in the Roman Empire at its height were thinking about those northern barbarians, like the Goths mm-hmm. and whatnot. I think also we need to contextualize that in that the idea of the Middle Ages as a dark age did not really come about until the Renaissance, and then it was even further perpetrated by late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, philosopher, poets, etc., who looked back and decided to make Europe the center of the world, because that's when peak imperialism was going on. And when you combine that with the influence that the Renaissance had on them in that period, you start understanding, okay, so the Middle Ages were this dirty backwards time but also they're still the center of the universe because obviously Europe is the center of the world because we're imperialists and we're the most civilized so we always have to be the most civilized and that's sort of where that view kind of comes from even if it's not accurate to how medievals would even perceive themselves yeah and the dark ages are not nearly as dark as uh, as people think also true an exaggeration by quote enlightenment era uh, philosophers who wanted to emphasize how enlightened they were by trashing the people who came before them. It makes me so mad. Yeah. It's so such like, a boomer attitude. Yeah. It kind of is, isn't it? It really is. Back in my day. 
Like, we're so fancy now, and, and you guys with your phones and blah, blah, blah. It's like, shut up, old man. Come on. You destroyed the universe. <laughs> it was a rough time. Like True. A lot of knowledge got lost. That is true. Yes. But we do also have to remember that while, while Christendom is going through this dark age, Islam mm-hmm. is going through its golden age, and for everyone right. else, it's just business as usual. Yep. Precisely. Precisely. So, like, yeah. That, that's yeah. one of the reasons I kind of like the Middle Ages, is because I'm always interested in what, like, barbarians are doing, instead of, mm-hmm. quote, civilized people, because, yeah. I don't know, I'm not a big fan of civilization. <laughs> Once you reach the peak, there's no going back, and you're sort of like, wait, how did we get there? I want to know how we got there. But we've now been talking for, like, 15 minutes without getting into the text, so let's go. Yes. We finished book one last time, now we're starting book two. And book two begins with Chuan Tsang actually reaching India and giving us an overview of what this place is. And I'm going to skip over most of it, like most of the just like, I don't know, travel guide part, so we can get to the interesting like folk tales and sites at the end. But I am going to hit some of the sections that I think are particularly cool or interesting or weird. There we go. And the first of those is a section entitled Measures of Length. <clears throat> to give a brief account of matters. Oh, and I'm going to try my best to get all these words right, because there are going to be a lot of foreign words in here. All of the Sanskrit words in this text were written in, like, the 19th century version of Sanskrit to Roman alphabet transcription. Mm. And I, I've tried to translate that into IPA best I can because that's something I can read yeah. but that still doesn't address the fact that a lot of the consonants are just not ones that exist in English like there's there's a lot of distinctions between different nasals that we just don't do Yeah. so I'm probably going to say a bunch of this stuff wrong. In point of measurements there is first of all the Yojana. This from the time of the holy kings of old has been regarded as a day's march for an army The old accounts say it is equal to 40 li. According to the common reckoning in India, it is 30 li. But in the sacred books of Buddha, the Yojana is only 16 li. In the subdivision of distances, a Yojana is equal to 8 kroshas. A krosha is the distance that the lowing of a cow can be heard. (laughs) That's a great arbitrary distance that is not necessarily that arbitrary when you think about it. Yeah. For us, it seems very arbitrary because we're like, when am I ever going to need to know how far a cow's call can be heard? But if you're a farmer or if you're, you know, living in that world where you don't have a car, there's no, you know, horsepower engines here. Mm -hmm. If you're just going based off of, you know, as the crow flies, it's a great way to do it. Yeah, exactly. That is a, that is a actually a very good way to measure distance in a way that doesn't get too screwed up by terrain or the vagaries of roadways. Mm-hmm. Or calculations. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure to what extent, but I would imagine that in a region with a lot of Hindus, maybe there are more cows, so it's more of a common thing. Because yeah. I don't know a whole lot about Hindu culture, but I know there's that cows are part of it. Yes. Oh, and it also reminds me of, isn't an acre, like, the amount of land a a bull can plow in a day or something? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Historically speaking. Yeah, so it's it's the same kind of thought, but I imagine it's it's more of an objective measurement because a boar could plow maybe more or less in a day depending on the quality of the soil and the yeah. heaviness of the terrain. True. Anyway, moving on. A crocha is divided into 500 bows, or danus, danus. I don't know, this is a, it's an aspirated D, then an uh, then an E. Ooh, that's hard. Yeah, especially since I don't know how to aspirate consonants. Like, I know theoretically how it works, but I can't make my face do it. <laughs> and it doesn't explain how they, what that measurement is, but I'm going to take a guess and say it's literally the length of a long bow. That makes sense. A bow is dis- is divided into four cubits, or hustus. A cubit is divided into 24 fingers, angulus. A finger is divided into seven barleycorns, yavas, and so on to a louse, yuca. A nit, lix, ha. A dust grain, a cow's hair, a sheep's hair, a hair's down, copper water, which a footnote suggests is like meaning a small hole you put in a copper vessel to allow water to flow out. Oh, okay. And so on for seven divisions till we come to a small grain of dust. This is divided sevenfold until we come to an excessively small grain of dust. <laughs> on new. This cannot be divided further without arriving at nothingness, and so it is called the infinitely small, or paramanyu. And now I have to ask, does that sound familiar to you? I mean, I'm thinking of, like, quarks and atoms. Yeah. They, they're going all the way down until there's, you know, nothing. Yeah. Neurons and... Yeah, and this is one of those wild things where, you know, I don't know about you, but in uh, in high school I was taught that Democritus was the first person to come up with the idea of the atom. Yeah, I, always, I think I did hear that it was a Greek idea. Yeah. There's actually some debate about that. Okay. Because... Democritus lived in the 5th century BCE. Mm-hmm. Now, possibly independently, mm-hmm. we don't know for sure, India and Greece did have trade, so one could have influenced the other, whichever direction that flows. But a philosopher in India called Kanada, it's spelled like Canada with a K, but the emphasis is supposed to be on the second syllable. Okay. <laughs> also came up with the idea of atoms. All but right. We don't know for sure whether Kanada lived uh, in the 4th, 5th, or 6th century BCE. So he could have been before or after Democritus. That's a big range. Yeah. Well, I mean, once, you, once you're back, like, almost 3,000 years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to figure yeah. out the precise date. That's interesting. I would be, I generally am more inclined to say concurrently they came up with this idea because yeah. I, I feel like i don't know if you think about the idea of laws and a quote-unquote or the divine idea of god quote of not god of laws yeah i was gonna we, say we neither eventually... of these people are monotheistic <laughs> no 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 but like the the divine idea of the law as being something above human rulers mm-hmm. this was something that sort of slowly came about concurrently several different people had those ideas at the same time and so i wouldn't be surprised if yeah 
Yeah, no, I, if I had to bet, I would say that Democritus and Canada, also someone please tell me if I'm saying any of these names wrong, like tweet at me or email us or something. I don't know. If I had to bet, I would bet that they came up with it independently around like the same era. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Regardless of which one was first, because we don't know, I don't think either one got it from the other. Mm-hmm. That would be my bet. So we have ridiculously infinitesimally small measurements that I'm really impressed that he went down to. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to know, because the text skips over a bunch of the, like the, the divisions in between like copper water and grains of dust and excessively small grains of dust. So I want to know if they all have names and what those names are. Yeah, for real though. And when would you use these in common parlance? I have no idea. Like, I, I cannot think of a time when, like, just a, a non-physicist would need to measure something that is thinner than hairs down. I am this close to losing it. That's that's when I would use it. <laughs> Be like, you know, yes. you want to know how close I am to losing it? I am that close. Right. That's when you'd use it in, like, metaphorical yeah. <laughs> language. Exactly. Or in literature. Mmm, true. True, true, true. I know in some like uh, uh, mythologies, they have terms for periods of time that are like tens of thousands of years. And that's Mm -hmm. because like not because anyone actually needs to use that in regular day to day life, but because when they're talking about like gods and spirits and stuff, that kind of idea comes up. Mm -hmm. You know, just just like we never need to say like a billion years in everyday life. But when we're talking about cosmology, we do. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if we're exaggerating something. Yeah. We're using that metaphor again. Never in a billion years. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the next section I noted as interesting. This is the beginning of his description of the towns and buildings in the area. Okay. Like the, the section is just entitled Towns and Buildings. Very straightforward. I like it. The towns and villages have inner gates. The walls are wide and high. The streets and lanes are tortuous and the roads winding. The thoroughfares are dirty and the stalls arranged on both sides of the road with appropriate signs. Butchers, fishers, dancers, executioners, scavengers, and so on have their abodes without the city. So, (laughs) I love this list of people who are not allowed to live in the city, not because I think we should forbid people from living in the city based on their profession, but because I don't see anything in common that these have, except maybe butchers and executioners. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's nothing that says they're, be- they're forbidden to live inside the city. They just generally live without. What's the list again? Read the list again. Butchers, fishers, dancers, executioners, and scavengers. Okay. Now, I'm assuming that this these are people who have to live outside the city because, of course, there is a caste system in place, and he may That's be true. listing the jobs that are done by lower castes. That would make sense, especially because butchering is particularly gross. Fishing, you also have to gut the fish. Yeah. And then you've got dancers, which might be, quote-unquote, code for prostitutes. And then executioner sort of makes sense. And scavenger just seems like beggar? Butchers and fishers would have a reason to live outside the city. Yes. Dancers, executioners, and scavengers, you'd think that they would be much more successful inside the city. So You would think. 
They wouldn't choose to live outside the city. Yeah. I guess they commute. Yeah. Hmm. All right. My favorite part of this is that Xuantang ends that list with, and so on. (laughs) As if we can then fill in the rest of the professions that obviously the pattern has been set up. (laughs) Acrobats and tanners and so on. I don't know. What else (laughs) would you put in the list? I mean, this is one of those times when I'm always tempted to say politicians, but... (laughs) But anyway, uh, in coming and going, these persons, that list we just had, are bound to keep on the left side of the road until they arrive at their home. Their houses are surrounded by low walls and form the suburbs. The earth being soft and muddy, the walls of the towns are mostly built of brick or tiles. The towers on the walls are constructed of wood or bamboo. The houses have balconies and belvederes, which I don't remember what that is. That's a very British term. Google it. Oh, okay. It's like a turret cupola or an open gallery. So what I'm thinking of is like, have you seen um, those little like porches that come out from walls? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying That's to figure out if there's if there's a difference between a Belvedere and a Widow's Walk. Ooh, good question. Well, I think Belvedere, from what I'm seeing, is just a, a generic word for any one of those. So the houses have those, which are made of wood with a coating of lime or mortar and covered with tiles. The different buildings have the same form as those in China. Rushes or dry branches or tiles or boards are used for covering them. The walls are covered with lime and mud, mixed with cow's dung for purity. At different seasons, they scatter flowers about. Such are some of their different customs. India is always so colorful to me, and I'm glad that they have such a long tradition of color. Yeah, it really does sound like these are very pretty buildings. I skipped most of the bit about dress, habits, and clothing. If you're curious, you can get Song. The edition I have is called Buddhist Records of the Western World. Edited by Samuel Beale. It's public domain, so you can probably get it on HathiTrust or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one sentence that I wanted to highlight from Dress and Habits, because it, it, it tickled me, is this. Okay, here we go. Some of the men cut off their mustaches and have other odd customs. <laughs> okay. So I think we just learned that everyone in China is mustachioed, because cutting it off is an odd custom to him. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have nothing to add to that except that, nope, I've, I've just got nothing to add. Yeah, it reminds me of Nyal Saga, where, like, when people start making fun of Nyal for being beardless, you suddenly realize, oh, everyone in this place has a beard. No one's clean-shaven. Yep. Because, yep. like, they didn't, they don't think to mention that unless, except to say, like, this person's not doing it. Cultural ticks. And here is a section about uh, the Buddhist schools and discipline and books, which I'm going to read not because it's entertaining, but because it's interesting and it gives us some um, context for how it's like treated culturally and within the, the fate, because obviously that, that's been coming up a lot. And so it's nice to have this rundown. Yes, for sure. There are 18 schools, each claiming preeminence. The partisans of the great and the little vehicle are content to dwell apart. For anyone who doesn't remember from our previous uh, episode on this, the great vehicle is like 
a newer, more like mystical and spiritual version of Buddhism. And the little vehicle is the somewhat older, more like grounded version. There are some who give themselves up to quiet contemplation and devote themselves, whether walking or standing still or sitting down, to the acquirement of wisdom and insight. Others, on the contrary, differ from these in raising noisy contentions about their faith. I like that he's like, some people just like to meditate, but some people like to argue. I'm like, thanks, guy. I mean, I religion has religion. not changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> According to their fraternity, they are governed by distinctive rules and regulations, which we need not name. The Vinaya, Discourses, Sutras, are equally Buddhist books. He who can entirely explain one class of these books is exempted from the control of the Karmadana, title of a senior temple administrator. So basically, if you learn your lessons really well, then this authority figure now can't boss you around anymore. Oh, okay. If he can explain two classes, he receives, in additions, the equipments of an upper room. Okay. This is part of their religious organization. This is not yeah. just the general populace. Okay. Yeah, we're talking about, like, specifically, like, the seriously religious people. The, 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 gotcha. the people in the temples. Gotcha. The monks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that we keep seeing in a lot of the stories is just being able to explain the various doctrines and philosophies of their religion in a way that makes sense to other people and is still thorough and accurate. Mm-hmm. It's like, what people expect from yeah. a monk. Like, that is the the, the virtue they expect. Makes sense. In the sense. last one, when they went to visit the Naga King, that's what the uh, Arhat was doing for him, was explaining yeah. stuff. I wish more of that was in the West when it came to, like, knowing Christendom or whatever. I mean, for me, it's for me it's Christendom, because that's the culture I'm a part of. But that's that's a great philosophy to have. He who can explain three classes of book has allotted to him different servants to attend to and obey him. So now he is one of the guys who can boss the others around. Yeah. He who can explain four classes has pure men, upasakas, allotted to him as attendants. He who can explain five classes of books is then allowed an elephant carriage. That's quite the incentive. I want an (laughs) elephant carriage. Right? Like, imagine if that's, like, what you got. Ah, you finished your degree. Have an elephant. That would be so dope. Congratulations. You have a PhD now. Also, an elephant. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, And he who can explain six classes of books is allowed a surrounding escort. So I I guess he basically gets to be a parade wherever he goes, riding around on an elephant with, like, an, an entourage. Dang, we're getting up there. All right. That was the top one. There are six. That's impressive. When a man's renown has reached to a high distinction, then at different times he convokes an assembly for discussion. He judges of the superior or inferior talent of those who take part in it. He distinguishes their good or bad points. He praises the clever and reproves the faulty. If one of the assembly distinguishes himself by refined language subtle investigation, deep penetration, and severe logic. Then he is mounted on an elephant, covered with precious ornaments, and conducted by a numerous suite to the gates of the convent. Wow. That's a heck of an honor. Imagine if our seminars were like that. 
Like the professor would just go like, that's an amazing point you just made. Go ride the elephant. <laughs> I wish. These places actually sound like a blast. I, I, they really like for do. Huge nerds like us who enjoy yeah. like just learning and stuff and talking about it. Like I, I feel like this would be a great place to be. Yeah, I want to. I like. I want like a. I don't know between a two week and a two month intensive in one of these places where I just learn as much as I can, and maybe maybe I get to ride the elephant. <laughs> If, on the contrary, one of the members breaks down in his argument, or uses poor and inelegant phrases, or if he violates a rule in logic, and adapts his words accordingly, they proceed to disfigure his face with red and white paint, I assume, but it just says red and white. Interesting. So it could be any kind of substance. You have shamed yourself. And cover his body with dirt and dust, and then carry him off to some deserted spot and put him in a ditch. <laughs> Oh, wow, the incentives are real, man. <laughs> right? It's like, Be put in a ditch, ride an elephant. They don't say whether they get him back out of the ditch later or if they just, like, throw him there and, like, like if this is an expulsion thing or just a punishment thing. It's a good question. I, I wish we had a little more on that. Yeah. Thus they distinguish between the meritorious and the worthless, between the wise and the foolish. Certainly an effective method. All right. One... Last but longer bit of... This is this place. Oh, this is uh, Manners, Administration of Law and Ordeals. Okay. And I think the reason I put this in here is because both there is some interesting stuff and also I think the things that he highlights in discussing them tells us not only about what things were like in 7th century India, but also 7th century China because of what, like, the contrast he's drawing. Yep. And may I point out here that this is one of the most important things that you can do either as a writer or as a DM, because no matter who is giving you the information, they are not only telling you about what they are describing, but they are telling you about themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a really easy way. Well, simple, not easy. It's a simple way to give more characterization and you can even hide context clues through, for instance, an NPC's background just by how they go about approaching something. Yeah, like what, what this reminded me of was, have you read Terry Pratchett, the Discworld books? Not the Discworld books. I've read, I've read some of his other stuff. Okay, you need to read Discworld. It, there's a okay. reason it's his most popular series. But, Fair enough. Although some of his other stuff is really good. I got so much crap this week from one of my friends down here because I had just finished listening to one of Brian Sanderson's 2020 fiction writing lectures, which are fantastic. They're for free on YouTube. Highly recommend. I'll link them in the blog. But I divulged that I have never read a, Brian, a Brandon Sanderson book in my life, and he was appalled. So that is first on my list. Uh, but Discworld will go on after. <laughs> yeah. If it helps, I have also not read a Brandon Sanderson book. I just know of his existence. I tried listening to one of his lectures from an earlier year. It might have been 2015. And I couldn't do it. Just something about the way he was explaining world building or the map. I was just like, nope, no, can't do this. But I decided to give him another try this year and just devoured that lecture series because he teaches at BYU. So highly recommend if you're a writer, if you're a DM, it's also going to be very useful the way that he talks about um, deriving plots comes from like a three-step process of promise, 
progress and payoff, which is a great way to set up quest hooks as well. So highly recommend. But anyway, the reason that we got here was because I was asking if you'd read Discworld. And the reason yes. I was asking that is because what this idea of how hearing someone describe the laws of another country tells you both about that country's laws and their country's laws. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Two Flower from some of the really early Discworld novels. Oh. It was a tourist from another country who comes to Ankh-Morpork, which is like the biggest city on, in that world, and then goes back and writes about it for his own people. And a lot of the stuff he says is like, I heard a man insult the patrician, who's the ruler of the city, and there was a city guard in the room. And rather than beat the man, he said, yes, tell him the same from me. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that tells you a lot about both Ankh-Morpork, which is very irreverent in character, and mm-hmm. about the more monarchical society that Two Flower comes from, yeah, where someone would get beaten for insulting the ruler. Yeah. There you go. Great world building. Anyway, here, here's our bit about laws and people's general manners and demeanor. With respect to the ordinary people... Although they are naturally light-minded, I have no idea what that means. Like, are they cheerful, or are you saying their brains are small? Okay. What makes you What makes you light-minded? Oh, light, light-minded. Yeah, like light, like bright, or light, like not heavy, and like, what are we? I don't know. Ooh, hopefully. I like, want to say it means carefree. like cheerful and carefree. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't. I can't swear to that. Let's Let's lean into that since we don't have any other context. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, the only other context is that even though they are naturally light-minded, they are upright and honorable. There we go. I feel like carefree works in that context. Sure. Let's go with that. In money matters, they are without craft. Uh, I assume this is craft in the sense of deception or guile. Makes sense. And in administering justice, they are considerate. They dread the retribution of another state of existence, i.e., I think, the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Or... Reincarnation. Reincarnation, yeah. And make light of the things of the present world. They are not deceitful or treacherous in their conduct, and are faithful to their oaths and promises. In their rules of government, there is remarkable rectitude, whilst in their behavior there is much gentleness and sweetness. With respect to criminals and rebels, these are few in number, and only occasionally troublesome. This is an amazing contrast to that horrible, horrible man who went to Constantinople. Which, oh, Lupran? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they just think about the difference here. Is It's like, let's just say that this is how you should approach travel. This is the proper way. Don't be a Lupran. Come with consideration for the people there. When the laws are broken, or the power of the ruler violated, then the matter is clearly sifted, and the offenders imprisoned. There is no infliction of corporal punishment. They are simply left to live or die, and are not counted among men. I don't know if that's better or worse. I think we might be talking about the difference between like a state that depends on imprisoning and a state that depends on physical punishment. And there's also some hint of like an outlaw process, the same way they do they did it in Iceland, where you're like you're just no longer part of the Oh, and then you, they don't care if you live or die. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. When the rules of propriety or justice are violated, or when a man fails in fidelity or filial piety, Then they cut his nose or his ears off, or his hands and feet, or expel him from the country, 
or drive him out into the desert. So mutilation and exile are apparently the standards for if you violate propriety, justice, fidelity, or filial piety. Interesting. So that's how it regards men. Does it say anything about women? Hmm. Because it specifically said men, at least the translation does. It did specifically does. say men. Okay, all of the things in this chapter either say men or they use uh, gender-neutral phrases. Interesting. But I'd also not be surprised if what's going on here is that even if it's phrased in a gender-neutral manner in the original text, since this was translated a while ago, Mm -hmm. it would be during the time where it was considered that the male pronouns were the gender-neutral pronouns. Right. And so they would have just gone with that. I can see you're, you're looking around. Are you looking something up? Well, I'm just trying to figure out mentally what what it would be, but I I guess it would be the gender neutral. I just I don't know whether they would even like how did they consider women at all at this point? Right, maybe they don't consider these things to be part of like women's life. I don't know to what extent they're involved in in administering justice or in politics, and so maybe it just doesn't yeah. come up. However, I would bet that they care about women's filial piety. That's true. That's true. So, I think if I had to guess, I I would assume these are gender-neutral punishments. Fair enough. It's a good way to go. Well, it also also may have never been a consideration for our narrator. Maybe he never got that perspective, so he doesn't know, so he doesn't write about it. That's true. He might not even be talking to women. Maybe there's a whole different set of rules and he just doesn't know it. See, that's one of those interesting things where we, we don't necessarily know where those gaps are in our historical understanding. And so, mm-hmm. you know, do we take this? And, and again, this is why, and I will forever say this, this is why having new translations is so important. Because when this was translated, we had a different understanding of gender neutral terms and now we have a very mm-hmm. different understanding. So only by going back to the original text can we actually understand whether he was talking about men or mankind as a whole. And e- even regardless of like that kind of thing, common knowledge changes. Maybe different things mm-hmm. need to be footnoted. Yeah, that's true like, too. What the fuck is a belvedere? Yeah. <laughs> that's also true. Huh. But there so, you go. Yeah. Another another plea for new translations. Yes, please, anyone, anyone who has the power to make universities give out more, like, fellowships or stuff to get translations done. Like, there are hordes of grad students who would love to do translation. I would love to do translation. Oh, same. Give me a stipend. I will make new translations with tons of footnotes, parallel text, the whole nine Full shebang. Oh, yes. For other faults, other than these... A small payment of money will redeem the punishment. So, other than those, it's a fine. There we go. Not bad. In the investigation of criminal cases, there is no use of rod or staff to obtain proofs of guilt. That's an improvement over the Inquisition. I think this is one of the reasons I stopped on this, because he's basically saying, how unusual that these people don't beat confessions out of their supposed (laughs) criminals. Oof. In questioning an accused person, if he replies with frankness, the punishment is proportioned accordingly. But if the accused obstinately denies his fault, or in despite of it, attempts to excuse himself, then in searching out the truth to the bottom, when it is necessary to pass sentence, there are four kinds of ordeal used. 
And this is the same ordeal as in trial by ordeal. Yes. Where, like, in the absence of any proof one way or the other, you have them go through an ordeal, and depending on how that ordeal works out, they're either innocent or they're guilty. God will decide sort of thing. Yeah. This is uh, one of the things you often hear about medieval justice that I'm not sure is true or false is the idea of, like, if we throw the witch in the river and she sinks, she was innocent, and if she floats, she's guilty. There were some instances like that, and it sort of depended on the legal system in terms of how accessible was an actual court versus how far in Hicksville are we? Because if if you don't have access to a court... And was it medieval medieval, or are we talking early modern? Because that's when the witch thing became really big. That's true. Oh, there is um, a fascinating film about animal trials in France that was part of my medieval history and film course. And it's absolutely fascinating because it does go into the law. And it's got, um, it stars Colin Firth. And it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's like, you're, you're watching this. And honestly, it, I've never done drugs, but it feels like you're on a trip. This entire film does. And let me, let me see if I can remember what the name is. And for the uninitiated, when Zoe says animal trials, that's exactly what it sounds like. Yes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's called The Hour of the Pig. It's a 1993 British and French film starring Colin Firth. And it's set in 15th century France based upon the career and case files of Bartholomew Chesigny, an actual lawyer of the time who served as an advocate for animals who were accused of crimes. At that time, animal trials were used to determine whether animals were the perpetrators of supernatural mayhem. Or for instance, like if your donkey kicks a man and, you know, he is, you know, devastatingly injured by this, then your donkey can literally go on trial. Like the opening scene of this film is a donkey being hanged. Uh, It's also called The Advocate. It's hysterical, and I'm not sure whether it's meant to be a comedy. So there you go. It's also, (laughs) I do need to say that there are some not so great depictions of the Moors in it. Ooh. So fair warning, they're at first thought to be gypsies, which there's, there's a lot there and a lot of it is covered up by... Also not, not, a, not a great term. No, 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 no. So some of it is the film not being sensitive to it and some of it is the actual you know, European view at the time of not being sensitive to those things, which doesn't excuse the filmmakers for not being sensitive to those things. So I'm just going to leave that there. It is a weird film, but there you go. So yeah, animal trials were a thing, and you could you could have the animal do X, Y, or Z. And the reason I bring that up is because the very beginning of the film also includes a witch, and she's got like a mole on her side, and they call it a, a third tit that proves that she's a witch. So there's that bit. But that's why that reminded me of that. So yes, it did exist to a point, but it also depends on what the court system looked like at the time. Yeah. The more common version of that, the one that was actually current in medieval Europe, would be um, something along the lines of, here is a bar of heated iron. If you can Mm, carry mm -hmm. it for 20 steps, you're innocent. If you drop it, you're guilty. Because either if you're innocent, God will give you the strength to not be so badly harmed by it. But if you're guilty, God will let it burn you. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, they, they'd set a difficult and painful task and assume that if you were innocent, God would give you the strength to get through it. Yep. And this is very similar to, to the method of trial by combat, where they assume yeah. that uh, if you won, it was because God was on your side and therefore you were in the right. Yes. The point of all that is that's what, what, what we mean when we say ordeals. And now we're going to hear about the kind of trials by ordeal they had in India. Here we go. There are four kinds of ordeals used. One, by water. Two, by force. Three, by weighing. Four, by poison. Does he go into more more detail about these? It does. It does. Okay, 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 okay. When the ordeal is by water... Also, um, here's another reason why we need more, more translations. I'm pretty sure force was a typo. Okay. Because the paragraph in between the ordeal by water and the ordeal by weight actually says by fire. Ah, yes, that would uh, that would make sense. When the ordeal is by water, then the accused is placed in a sack connected with a stoned vessel and thrown into deep water. They then judge of his innocence or guilt in this way. If the man sinks and the stone floats, then he is guilty. But if the man floats and the stone sinks, then he is innocent. Uh, okay? Yeah, the guy's in a sack... And you've got, like, a stone vessel of some kind tied to the sack with a rope or something. You throw them in. One of them floats and one of them sinks. This just seems like a weight distribution problem. What I like about it is that it's clearly biased in favor of the accused. Because if... Yeah! He's guilty if he sinks, but the stone vessel floats. That's not gonna happen too often. No. You'd have to throw the vessel just right. Oh, no. I'm assuming we're talking like a jug or a bowl or something. Like, you'd have to throw it so the water didn't get inside it. Yeah, it so you you have that little bubble of air. Yeah, So, but most of the time, I feel like the stone vessel would sink and the man would float and then he'd be pronounced innocent. Oof. Secondly, by fire. They heat a plate of iron and make the accused sit on it and again place his feet on it and apply it to the palms of his hands. Moreover, he is made to pass his tongue over it. Oh, no. <laughs> If no scars result, he is innocent. If there are scars, his guilt is proved. But don't worry, I I could see you reacting badly, but there is a clause here. Okay. In case of weak and timid persons who cannot (laughs) endure such ordeal, they take a flower bud and cast it towards the fire. If it opens, he is innocent. If the flower is burnt, he is guilty. That's such a drastic difference. If you can't put up with this, we'll just throw a flower towards the fire and see what happens. I'll take the flower, man. I assume that there's like a, a an honor thing in not saying like, I'm too weak for this ordeal. Like that would be a shame. And so you don't want to do it. I guess. Like, but what if it's a woman speaking for the day, like the day and age? Are they going to make a woman do that? In the day and age we're talking about, I would assume that they default to the flower thing for women and children. That would be my guess. Yeah. Also, how are my, like, how are like uh, minors treated here? It does not say. That's fascinating. I didn't even think of that. But I assume they didn't have the same, like, uh, rules about prosecuting minors that we do, because they probably didn't have the same concept of uh, one's minority or majority that we do. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so we've got water, we've got fire. Yeah, and I'd also like to note, the fire one is clearly biased towards the accuser. Mm -hmm. So I bet that one of the things that goes on is... The judge or whoever's picking the ordeal is picking which ordeal to use based on what he thinks the truth of the matter is, even if he can't mm-hmm. prove it. 
Yeah. Or possibly which side bribed him. Ooh, yeah, good point. Ordeal by weight is this. A man and a stone are placed in a balance evenly. Then they judge according to lightness or weight. If the accused is innocent, then the man weighs down the stone, which rises in the balance. If he is guilty, the man rises and the stone falls. That seems so biased. Well, it like, is and it isn't. Because it depends on what kind of a stone that you get and how big exactly, your man is. <laughs> exactly. Your, whoever picks the stone is basically deciding if he's innocent. Oh my gosh. I don't like this. This reminds me of uh, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's a witch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Precisely. Ordeal by poison is this. They take a ram and make an incision in its right thigh. Then mixing all sorts of poison with a portion of the food of the accused man, they place it in the incision made in the thigh of the animal. If the man is guilty, then the poison takes effect and the creature dies. If he is innocent, then the poison has no effect and he survives. So they're not poisoning the criminal. They take some of the criminal's most recent meal, because like a uh, theory of uh, sympathy and contagion, right. mix it with poison, put it into a wound they made on a ram, and if the ram survives, the man is innocent. I mean, I like that better than the alternative. Well, but you know, I mean, I still feel bad for the ram. Yeah, obviously, of course. These are not very even-minded ordeals. No, well, all trials by ordeal. There's so many ways for whoever's assigning or arranging the ordeal to rig it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So while the public logic is. God will decide. The private logic is, we can't prove it, so we're going to make a show, and we're going to weight it in favor of what we think is the truth, or what we think is the best decision for the community, or what we think is the best decision for the guy with the money. Yeah, yeah, for my pocketbook. I I am assuming that all courts are corrupt to some degree. Mm -hmm. Anyway. By these four methods of trial, the way of crime is stopped. Okie dokie. Oh, there are a couple more, but they're just single, like, sentences. Okay. Under the administration, as the administration of the government is founded on benign principles, the executive is simple. The families are not entered on registers, and the people are not subjected to forced labor. Which tells us some more about China. (laughs) Ooh... Oh, yes, and here's another sentence that tickled me. This is in uh, Plants and Trees. Ooh, okay. Flora and Fauna. Onions and garlic are little grown, and few persons eat them. If anyone uses them for food, they are expelled beyond the walls of the town. This is anti-onion and garlic propaganda in Constantine and... Sorry, in Constantinople and in India. I am against this. I get the impression that a lot of people had, like, issues with these these odorous vegetables that we, we don't really think about anymore as a thing. Or maybe maybe it's not about the bad breath, but I think it would be funny if they were kicking people out of town because they had bad breath. Oh, no, I, I, 90, 90% of me wants to say it is entirely due to smell. It's so reasonable, though. Yeah, but also onions and garlic are delicious, so fight. True. All right, final sentence that tickled me. Uh, This is about a specific uh, region, the region of Lanpo. The people there are given to music. Naturally, they are untrustworthy and thievish. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier, though. 
What, the musicians are untrustworthy and thievish? Uh-huh. And the dancers. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it's also go back. I didn't make that connection before. There we go. I mostly just included that because I know my parents occasionally listen to this and they're musicians. So. <laughs> Aw. All right. This has taken longer than I expected, but I'm going to try and get in at least one story. Okay. All right. So he's talking about a temple that's outside of the city that's now deserted. Okay. To the southwest of this Sangarama, is, is just what I'm going to go with there, a deep torrent rushes from a high point of the hill and scatters its water in leaping cascades. The mountainsides are like walls. On the eastern side of one is a great cavern, deep and profound, the abode of the Naga Gopala. The gate, or entrance, leading to it is narrow. The cavern is dark. The precipitous rock causes the water to find its way in various rivulets into this cavern. In old days, there was a shadow of Buddha to be seen here, bright as the true form, with all its characteristic marks. This is something that we come across a lot. Uh, the relics of Buddha show up tons in this text. I'll bet. And they include stuff like, his shadow shows up on this wall because he was here a long time ago, and like it just comes back because supernatural. Right. So that's what's going on here. This like, sounds like a great dungeon crawl. Yeah. Yeah, and I love the idea that, like, a holy spot can be just somewhere where, like, he was here and we know he was here because sometimes you can still see his shadow. Like, that's so cool. That's so spooky. Ooh. That's more interesting than ghosts, I think. Yeah. It's a nice twist on the whole ghost thing. But in later days, though, men have not seen it so much. What does appear is only a feeble likeness. But whoever prays with fervent faith he is mysteriously endowed, and he sees it clearly before him, though not for long. In old times, when Tathagata... Future Mac here. Tathagata, which I'm definitely saying wrong, not least because I can't aspirate the T, is a title given to Buddha. And the meaning of that title is actually somewhat complex, so... I would encourage you to look it up on your own. It's interesting, but I am not qualified to explain it. Thank you. What's in the world? This dragon, I assume that's the Naga Gopala, this dragon was a shepherd who provided the king with milk and cream. I'm assuming he was a human at this time. Having on one occasion failed to do so, and having received a reprimand, he proceeded in an angry temper to the stupa of the predictive assurance great name for a shrine. Yeah. And there made an offering of flowers, with the prayer that he might become a destructive dragon for the purpose of afflicting the country and destroying the king. Okay, this is the second time that we've seen somebody want to become an evil dragon. Yeah, it tends to happen a lot. So, I mean, I get it. I get I, it. Yeah. No, I get it too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna get something in a moment that gives us some context of, like, how this occurs. Okay. And I think that explains why it's so uh, common in this text that has uh, different beliefs on how death works. Oh, okay. Because after he makes this prayer, then ascending the rocky side of the hill, he threw himself down and was killed. So he's not asking for transformation. He's saying, I'm about to kill myself. I want you to reincarnate me as a dragon. That's a D&D &D villain. Yes. That's a great idea. I think that's also how the last guy did it, is he didn't ask to be transformed, he asked to be reincarnated. That's so badass. Forthwith, 
he became a great dragon. So someone was like, yeah, solid. No problem, dude. Well, I mean, he did he did go to the stupa of predictive assurance. That's true. He planned this out. He knew. That's another fun thing to have for D&D is like maybe if you go to if you know which shrines to go to, your prayers really will be granted. Some of the shrines have a have a more direct line to certain powers than others. Yeah, if you if you're getting Buddha Shadow, you don't get that much. But if you go to the shrine of, of predictive assurances, then you're you're more solid. He became a great dragon and occupied this cavern, and then he purposed to go forth and accomplish his original wicked purpose. When this intention had risen within him, Tathagata, having examined what was his object, was moved with pity for the country and the people about to be destroyed by the dragon. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. This is this is a, a familiar story in a way, even though it's in a completely different historical context. We're seeing like, all right, here's this holy man who's going to go destroy a monster. Like, we, it's very St. George. Mm-hmm. One could argue it is akin to Beowulf, even. That's true. Yeah, this is, I think this is just one of those tale types. But by his spiritual power, he came from mid-India to where the dragon was. The dragon, seeing Tathagata, his murderous purpose was stayed. And he accepted the precept against killing and vowed to defend the true law. He requested Tathagata to occupy this cavern evermore, that his holy re- disciples might ever receive the dragon's religious offerings. So not only does he agree not to kill them, he also says, I will become a defender of the faith. And if you establish a, a, like a monastery or something here, I will make offerings to the people who stay. Tathagata replied, When I am about to die, I will leave you my shadow, and I will send five arhats to receive from you continual offerings. When the true law is destroyed, uh, this is one of those um, Golden Age, Silver Age things. Uh, A footnote says, The true law is to last 500 years. Ah, okay. In 500 years' time, I don't know, something bad will happen and the true law will no longer be respected. Makes sense. Okay, hang on a second. What does it mean when he says, I will leave you my shadow? I think he's being literal. I think that's the shadow. Like we're getting the Buddha shadow again? Yeah, this this is part of the same passage. I think this is explaining how the shadow got here. Okay, all right. When the true law is destroyed, this service of yours shall still go on. If an evil heart rises in you, you must look at my shadow, and because of its power of love and virtue, your evil purpose will be stopped. The Buddhas who will appear throughout this... Oh dear. I didn't IPA this one. Bhadrakalpa, or something like that. The current age of the world. Okay. Is is basically what he's saying. Will all, from a motive of pity, entrust to you their shadows as a bequest. Okay. Outside of the gate of the cavern of the shadow, there are two square stones. And one is the impression of the foot of Tathagata. This is another kind of like secondary relic we see a lot in these texts. It's like a, a, a footprint or something. I like it. That's so much nicer than bones, I think. It is. It's less metal, but it feels more holy. True. That's true. Uh, on one of these two square stones is the impression of Tathagata's foot with a wheel circle, beautifully clear. I think that's that chakra thing. Mm, mm-hmm which shines with a brilliant light from time to time. So basically, that's just telling us, this is how this this thing came about. So now people who attain 
Buddhahood sometimes leave their shadows here, and that's why sometimes you can see a Buddha shadow. I love it. I know, it's so cool. I think this entire location would be fantastic for any kind of fiction or, or game. Absolutely. I have one other short thing, and then I think we're going to have uh, probably run out of time. On the southern side of the steps, on the eastern face of the great stupa, this is a different stupa. Okay. There are engraved two stupas. I don't know if that's like images of them or if it has like little sub shrines. Ooh, okay. One three feet high, the other five feet. They are the same shape and proportion as the great stupa. Again, there are two full-sized figures of Buddha, one four feet, one six feet in height. They resemble him as he sat cross-legged beneath the Bodhi tree. When the full rays of the sun shine on them, they appear of a brilliant gold color. And as the light decreases, the hues of the stone seem to assume a reddish-blue color. The old people say, Several centuries ago, in a fissure of the stone foundation, there were some gold-colored ants, the greatest about the size of the finger, the longest about a barleycorn in size. Those of the same species consorted together. By gnawing the stone steps, they have left lines and marks as if engraved on the surface. Okay, so those are the... Uh, stupas engraved. Okay. Ants did that. Ants carved little pictures into the sides of the shrine. Whoa. Golden ants. Yes. And by the gold sand which they left as deposits, they have caused the figures of Buddha to assume their present appearance. All right. Little miracle for you there. Yeah. I, I like that we have these these gold ants who like gilded a couple statues and carved images into the shrine. Just, like, because they're very pious ants. Yeah, why not? If we want, there's only one other thing I have marked in book two. Okay. If you have time, we can read it, and then we can start with book three next time. I think we might as well close it out. The book? Yes. Okay. In the town of Solotulo, Solotulo? Which, according to our translator is Salatura, wherever that is. Is it a real place? I think so. Let's find out. <laughs> I'm gonna say this wrong. <laughs> Salatura was the birthplace of the Sanskrit grammarian Panini. Yes. I, I've heard of him. Not kidding. Uh, who is considered... I, I know you're not kidding. That's, that's a, he's a very famous person in I have never heard of him before, and his name is Panini. Yes. Like the sandwich. I wonder if the sandwich is named after him, because like he's he is a famous figure. No, because I think one is Sanskrit and the other is Italian, isn't it? Like, Panini oh. is an Italian word. I don't know. Let's find out. Okay, it is the plural of panino, which is bread roll. Yeah, so it is just a coincidence. Yes. Technically, it's probably not pronounced the same because... Yes. It's also mentioned in the footnotes here that this is, that we're talking about his birthplace. And when they write out his name, they put a dot under one of the N's. So ah. that means that we're pronouncing these two N's differently. But I don't know how to do that. Okay. So Salatura is in modern... Gandhara, which is northwest Pakistan and parts of northeast Afghanistan. All right. So, well, in that town, there's a stupa, is the important thing. Yes. <laughs> oh. 
This is the spot where an Arhat converted a disciple of Panini. Hey! Tathagata had left the world some 500 years when there was a great Arhat who came to the country of Kashmir and went about converting men. Coming to this place, he saw a Brahmacharan, Brahmacharan occupied in chastising a boy whom he was instructing in letters. Then the Arhat spake to the Brahmin thus, Why do you cause pain to this child? The Brahmin replied, I am teaching him the proper noun that is long and has a lot of diacritical marks. Here, I did some googling. The child is being taught the Shabdavidya, which is the science of language, so linguistics. And the book later mentioned is the Shabdavidya Shastra, which means manual of linguistics, more or less. Obviously, it's not quite the way we'd understand it now because we're talking about very old forms of knowledge and recording it and categorizing it, but the equivalent. The boy is being taught basic linguistics, and Panini wrote the definitive text. But he makes no progress. The Arhat smiled significantly, on which the Brahmin said, Shamans are of a pitiful and loving disposition and well disposed to men and creatures generally. Why did you smile, honored sir? Pray let me know. I think our translator is using uh, shaman as like a synonym for arhat here. Ah, makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, okay, okay. The arhat replied, Light words are not becoming, and I fear to cause in you incredulous thoughts and unbelief. No doubt you have heard of the Rishi Panini, who compiled the... (laughs) Whatever the word is. The grammar stuff. Yes, the grammar book that Panini compiled. Yes. Which he has left for the instruction of the world. The Brahmin replied, The children of this town, who are his disciples, revere his eminent qualities, and a statue erected to his memory still exists. The Arhat continued, This little boy, whom you are instructing, was that very Panini. Wait. So, like, he's reincarnated. Bro. As he devoted his vigorous mind to investigate worldly literature... (laughs) <laughs> he only produced heretical treatises without any power of true reason in them. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so this is like a... He made this secular wisdom thing that we don't agree with. Okay, all right. He's a grammarian, though. What else did he write? It might just be like a conflict between uh, secular and holy knowledge, but let's see. Oh, just wondering if I'm missing something. The Sanskrit that Panini collected and compiled, he was using holy texts as, like, the basis for his grammar. Oh. So maybe this guy's beef is that he doesn't appreciate them being used that way, or he doesn't think he rendered them well enough. I mean, I get that if you correct somebody's grammar, especially if it's, you know, a holy text, people are going to get kind of twitchy. He's also trying to preserve various hymns and texts from corruption. Oh. But he also sometimes will summarize knowledge in a way that maybe other people didn't like. Mm, inaccurate or her- heretical. Yeah, so I think what we're looking at is like 
He did the things that, like, a historical linguist would usually do. Yeah. Or a descriptive linguist or, like, whatever. He's, he's collecting material. But maybe people don't appreciate the way that he renders and uses holy texts in this process. Fair enough. But yeah. That's just my guess. If anyone knows better, tell me. I feel like that's an accurate guess. Anyway, because he produced these heretical treatises, his spirit and his wisdom were dispersed and he has run through the cycles of continued birth from then till now. Thanks to some remnant of true virtue, he has now been born as your attached child. But the literature of the world and these treatises on letters are only cause of useless efforts to him, and are as nothing compared to the holy teaching of Tathagata, which, by its mysterious influences, procures both happiness and wisdom. On the shores of the southern sea, there was an old decayed tree, in the hollows of which 500 bats had... This is still the Arhat talking, by the okay. way. Okay. Like, I, I didn't just suddenly switch to another thing. <laughs> okay, just checking. Anyway. In the hollows of which 500 bats had taken up their abodes. Once some merchants took their seats beneath this tree, and as a cold wind was blowing, these men, cold and hungry, gathered together a heap of fuel and lit a fire at the tree foot. The flames catching hold of the tree, by degrees it was burnt down. At this time, amongst the merchant troop, there was one who, after the turn of the night, began to recite a portion of the Abhidharma Pitaka, which is what? It is a collection of canonical texts in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, I don't think it's Panini's stuff. It's just a collection of Buddhist texts. Ah, okay, okay. Yes. The bats, notwithstanding the flames, because of the beauty of the sound of the law, patiently endured the pain and did not come forth. After this, they died. Probably because of the fire. Most likely, yes. And according to their works, they all received birth as men. They became ascetics, practiced wisdom, and by the power of the sounds of the law they had heard, they grew in wisdom and became arhats as the result of merit acquired in the world. Lately, the king, Kanishka, with the honorable Parshvika, summoning a council of 500 saints and sages in the county of Kashmir, they drew up the Vibhasha Sastra. Vibhasha Sastra. Shastra? They compiled a thing. Okay. These saints and sages were the 500 bats who formerly dwelt in that decayed tree. I myself, though of poor ability, am one of the number. Okay, so random backstory. This guy came yeah, from like, a bat. I was a bat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the other guy was a dragon. You're not special. <laughs> I like the idea that like particularly enlightened people uh, know their past lives. Yeah. Like that's amazing. It is thus men differ in their superior or inferior abilities. Some rise, others live in obscurity. But now, O virtuous one, permit your pupil to leave his home. Becoming a disciple of Buddha, the merits we secure are not to be told. So, the summary here is... Okay, he is Panini reincarnated, but because of Panini's heresy or whatever, he's not interested in learning Panini. So let him be a disciple of Buddha with me. Oh, all right. Fascinating. The Arhat, having spoken thus, proved his spiritual capabilities, 
by instantly disappearing. And and reincarnated Panini is just left there? I guess. It doesn't say he reappears. This is not very useful if he wants to go and be a teacher. The Brahmin was deeply affected by what he saw and moved to believe. He noised abroad through the town and neighborhood what had happened and permitted the child to become a disciple of Buddha and acquire wisdom. Moreover, he himself changed his belief and mightily reverenced the three precious ones. The people of the village, following his example, became disciples. Until now, they have remained earnest in their profession. Until now? <laughs> dun dun dun! I think that's going to be including now. Ah, okay, that makes more sense. Up to this point. When I saw them, they were still cool, but who knows? Okay, okay, so we have a little grammarian heresy scandal here. Book two then ends just saying like, and then we go over some mountains and we arrive at this other place, and the other place will be described in book three. There we go. What say you? Ooh, best dialogue. What? I don't know if anything's popping out to me. Maybe I'm just like going brain dead here. There isn't a whole lot of dialogue as the thing. Most of it's description. Yeah. Okay, no, 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 no. I will leave you my shadow is the best dialogue. That is really good. Either that or turn me into a dragon right before he jumps off a cliff. No, that's best death. We'll save that one. Yeah, I will leave you my shadow is probably the best. The only other thing I think of that approaches that is the sudden shift into, let me tell you about these bats. (laughs) Yes, because there was nothing, there was no segue Right, but that's not so much dialogue as the fact that there's a lack of dialogue to explain that transition. Very true. Okay, I will leave you my shadow, yeah. Altobras. So the next one is Best Death, and I agree with you. I mean, chucking yourself off a cliff hoping to be reincarnated as a dragon is a heck of a way to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Bestiary. Well, we've got the Naga. Yeah, although we ha- we've had Nagas before. True. But we do have gold ants. Gold ants. Yeah, we do. And not gold digging ants like in the Wonders of the East, which are apparently also based on something from India, but ants that are gold and who do like little carvings. So where does this whole like gold ants thing come from? Because we've seen it twice now. Okay, there are actually like gold ants that are yellow. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, I don't like that. Ants ants can be yellow. I'm sure that's where that came from. Uh, But the gold digging ants are actually, uh, I think we brought this up but I can't remember whether we said it on the podcast or just in, in the blog. But it's actually a mistranslation. There are marmots yes. in the Himalayas who dig uh, gold dust out of the ground sometimes. Yeah, we did talk that. about that one in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so gold ants. There we go. What can we use in a tabletop RPG game? There's so much here. This is my favorite part. We've got giving somebody your shadow. Yes. Awesome. So what if what if you did like a Peter Pan move and you could like lend somebody your shadow? Or like what if instead of having like a duplicate, like instead of having another vision of you, you just your shadow leaves you and you can go and cast spells with your shadow. Oh, that's cool. That would be kind of a cool idea. I feel like there could be an entire class based on like your shadow does stuff for you yeah a shadow class 
We gotta come up with a name for that. There are already Shadow Dancers, but they that's a different thing. I don't know if they're in 5th edition, but they were a prestige class in 3rd edition. Oh. And they were like people who could jump through shadows as like a transportation thing. And they had some other uh, abilities. Interesting. I think that you can have a, like your big bad evil guy. Mm-hmm. You first, first, the first thing you do is you let your players defeat him. But instead of killing him, he jumps off of a cliff and is reincarnated as a dragon. Yes. That is one move you could certainly do. I feel like it would be cheap to have like him immediately pop back up as a dragon. For sure. He'd have to be reborn somewhere and yes. then like come back later. Campaign two. Yeah. Same guy. Reincarnated. Reincarnated. And then they have to unravel this whole thing about like, oh my gosh, how did he get reincarnated? You could definitely do that. You can have a shrine of, or a stupa of predictive assurance. Yeah, I think all of the descriptions of holy places here are pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Like the one that's been carved by ants, the shrine of predictive assurance, mm-hmm. that underground cave with the river and the dragon and the shadow. Yes. Super cool. Super cool. You could also have a place that is guarded by a dragon, like a monastery guarded by a dragon, which would be a mm. really cool take on the otherwise generally destructive dragons in D&D. This is more of a general thing rather than specific to this text, but I do think Trial by Ordeal is something could be fun to include in tabletop RPGs. Ooh, definitely. Like, skill checks. Especially if, like, one member of the party has to undergo the ordeal, and the other members of the party have to try and influence the judge to pick an ordeal that he can pass. Ooh, I like that idea. That's good. That's good. You could create some unique distances because there's like all those different distances at the very beginning. So you could have a term for how how far you can hear a cow's moo, mm-hmm. or you could you could have certain types of people who have to live outside of the city, and you could create a world building reason around that. Like for instance, I know a lot of tanneries were located outside of city walls or outside of villages because the sheer reek of oh, yeah, tanning skin, terrible. yeah, is just so gross. So that makes sense, but you could also delve into that for other cultural reasons. The other version of that I thought was maybe maybe all of your wizards have to live outside, or maybe they all have to live in towers by themselves, because otherwise they blow so much stuff up all the time that it's just not safe for them to live in the city. Yeah. And so they're one of those classes that has to live outside the city. Yeah, like some incident in the past, or series of incidents in the past, led to a law being mm-hmm. declared that like magic users may not live in the city. Boom. That's a good one. Honestly, that whole the whole part where he's just describing like India in general, there's a lot there you could borrow. And much of it would probably not be recognizable to your players as India because it was over a thousand years ago. Yeah. And probably filtered through some various translation issues and cultural understandings yeah. in the process. Mm-hmm. How many ages hence Shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? Echoes in modern culture? Dragon myth. Dragon myth. Dragon myth? That's a that's a big one. Yeah, the, the, the holy man fights a dragon? That's standard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even, even the turn there of having him not kill the dragon, but turn the dragon, has become very popular. I can't think of anything else other than, like, the various cultural practices, which we can say, oh yeah, people still do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. that's that's all I'm thinking of. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. I mean, we have all of those different length measurements. 
Yeah, the length mm-hmm. measurements are good. And there's more of that kind of stuff that I just skipped over. I only included the lengths because I thought it was cool that it went down to atoms. That's crazy. Street smarts! What are we learning from this text? Pray at the right shrine. Yes. Or you don't get to be a dragon. And who doesn't want to be a dragon? Yeah, pray at the right shrine for sure. Grammar is heresy. Okay, I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't spell for sh. <laughs> I mean, I'm on board with declaring prescriptive linguistics to be heretical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Study. Do your homework. You might get to write an elephant. That's right. Study hard, ride elephants. There we go. Hopefully ethically. Yes. Ethically ride elephants. You can study unethically as long as you learn the material. (laughs) Aren't you a TA? Yeah, but like, as long as they're learning, (laughs) I don't care how they're doing it. That's fair. Oh, man. Okay. Best moment. I think I still like the whole dragon guy. Yeah, that's really I just good. like that whole series of events that goes on. Or the bat guy. <laughs> the guy's just like, I was a bat. <laughs> I think that's my favorite, is when he's just like, I'm going to tell you a story <laughs> about these bats. <sighs> but I also think it really points to like the world-building potential of reincarnation. And I feel like we don't do that enough, at least in, the, in English language literature, because that's not part true. of the cosmology we're used to working with. But there is a that's lot true. of interesting potential there. Mm-hmm. All right. The court. You already know who, who I want to pick. I don't know who you want to pick. I, can I pick the dragon oh, guy? Oh, yeah, of course you can pick the dragon guy. Yes, I want the dragon guy. I think his name was Gopala. Yes. I want a dragon in my court. Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm not 100% certain he counts as mortal, but yeah, yeah. I feel like we, we can we can, <laughs> we can let him uh, skate by. All right, what about you? Well... As we've already noted, there aren't that many characters, so I'm going to take the only other one who even gets something approaching a name, which is the kid who used to be Panini. (laughs) Reincarnated Panini. Which means I now have multiple children in my court, so I hope that some of the others there are good at childcare. Yes. I mean, you've got got Kulin's dog, so they can play with your dog. And you also have uh, Alvi as well. Yeah, multiple dogs. So you have dogs. two dogs. Nice. Oh, I've got the leopard woman. So I've got the leopard and the dragon now. So I'll take it. Final rating. I feel like what we should do with this one is one rating for all the cultural information and then one rating for each of the two stories, if that works for you. Ooh, Okay. Because usually we split this up by section, but I feel like doing a different rating for each of the little bits and pieces of cultural information would be... I like the cultural information. I do, too. That's why I included so much of it. More than I thought I had until I sat down and started reading. Yeah, it's very comprehensive. And it's very even-tempered, as opposed to Leofrand. So... (laughs) Yeah, Xuan Song seems to genuinely like it in India. Yeah. I think that's the difference, is he's enjoying himself. That is engaging. I'm giving it a nine. All right. Because it's engaging. It's not really racist or degrading in any way, which is extraordinarily rare for something in this time. That's true. I think he he does occasionally insult, like, subgroups of, like, the people in this area. Ugh. But it's never, like, a broad thing. It's like, I don't like this town or something. Yeah. So what did you give it? 
I gave that part a nine. I will almost match you. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give it an eight. There we go. Let's see. What's the first story versus the second one? Uh, the first story is ah, Buddha's shadow, which is also the one with the dragon guy. It's it's a nine. I love it. What's not to love? Yeah. It's short, sweet, to the point. You understand how the place got to be the way it is. It's engaging. It comes with a twist. I'm going to match you with a nine. The only improvement I could think of is that I want it to be more. I want more of it. Yes. Yeah, more. It's, it's too short to be a perfect ten, but I can't think of anything wrong with it. And our second story is Panini. Panini Kid. I'm giving this one a six. Because it, like, it took me a minute to understand what's going on. And if you don't understand the like religious background to it, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. But it is hysterical that this is the reincarnated Panini. And it's also, like, Batman's weird little <laughs> tangent is just so out of the blue. It's confusing but funny at the same time. Yeah. I like it a little more because I like the idea that grammar can be heresy. But I also feel like That's it's fair. something that I'm I'm missing a lot of because I don't have the cultural background to understand it properly. I will mm-hmm. give it a seven. All right. Welcome. The Leech's Corner. We're back in the Leech book. This one is book two, chapter 39. And we're down in the guts here. Ooh, okay. For a windy distension of the milt, which apparently means the spleen. For I'm sorry, a windy spleen. A windy distension of the spleen. And, and what is that? I don't know. <laughs> okay. What is a distension? It does tell me more about this. Okay. Because uh, the rest of the sentence is, From eating of apples and of nuts and of peas. So apparently apples, nuts, and peas cause windy distensions of the spleen. They produce inflation through the long gut and small guts, the womb, or womb, which is just their general term for belly, and the inwards and the maw. So apparently apples, nuts, and peas will cause inflation in your guts and your spleen to become distended. Also, I want to point out here that they make a distinction between the large and small intestine. They do. So they do know bodily anatomy. I mean, I have to assume that medieval people had a pretty solid grasp on gross anatomy. Because, you know, if you're on a battlefield, you're gonna figure out what intestines look like. Oh, that's true. That's very, very true. Because it's the subtleties that you have to do, like, dissections for. Yes. Anyway, for that, is useful pepper and cumin and salt. Mingle them together. Some other spleen problems. For ill juices and wavy movements and yoxing, a term which cocaine helpfully translates as hiccating, which I then have helpfully translated as hiccuping, because apparently... Ah! The, the word has changed a bit since his day. I had to apparently. I, I had to confirm that with a dictionary. That also cometh from the spleen. And here's how to fix that. A southern wart height gith, which is good to eat on bread. And seed of march, and of coriander, and of parsley, kneaded up into bread, or rubbed fine into wine. And also that is beneficial for inflation of the milt, or the spleen. If, however... The distinction from the wind cometh suddenly, then these things cannot help, since that will turn into dropsy. Oh, okay. So this is not take one of these and you'll be fine. This is like 
eat these things and you won't have any more yeah. spleen inflation. Yeah, which I don't think is in any way connected to dropsy, but I could be wrong. And define dropsy. It's also swelling, but it's like, it's an accumulation of excess water, basically. Dropsy is actually shortened from uh, hydropsy. Oh, okay. It's a buildup of fluid. Interesting. Okay. If one applieth the warming leechdoms to that, then one acheth or augmenteth the disease. So... If the problem is dropsy, then this will make it worse, so be careful. Oh, makes sense. For a milt-sick man, one must give him vinegar in the southern leechdom which height oxymel. For anyone who is less versed in weirdly archaic Victorian translations, height is uh, called. Yes. And oxymel is made with vinegar and honey, I believe. That's very commonly used in these. Yeah. You can still get... Oxymel, people still make Oxymel, but it's now used as more of a flavoring for cocktails and other drinks than as a medicine. Hmm, good to Although know. I think there's some like new age, all natural medicine groups that still do it medically. It's like the Coca-Cola thing. It was meant to be a medicine initially and then it oh. became a soda. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not know it was meant to be a medicine. I thought it was just a convenient way to uh, have cocaine. <laughs> no, I think it, was, I think it originally began with, with uh, medicinal use. I mean, I think cocaine was considered medicinal at one point, so that they could both be true. Anyway, Oxymel. Yes. <laughs> which we wrote of against the half-dead disease and the disease of the bladder. Take rind of laurel and dry mint and pepper and seed of rue, costumary and whorehound and centauri, that is, herdwort or by another name, earth gall, chiefly the juice of it, add these warts to the before-named leechdom, Oxymel, into the ooze. <laughs> That's a great word. I'm going to assume that the ooze is oxymel and not something oozing from the patient. I would hope so. Thou mayest see where we have spoken of the before-named diseases, how thou shalt prepare the oxymel. So he's like, see above for instructions on in how to make this stuff. I'm not writing it out again. Right. Seethe in water rind of elder until there be of the water a third part unboiled away, and then give a good jug full of it to be drunk at three times. Leave always a day's space between the doses. This same is beneficial for a loin-sick man. Oh. Whatever that means. Like, I would I would assume kidney. Could be. Or, or liver. Because we're talking about spleens, and then if you go a little bit lower. That tracks. That would be my guess. I can also see loin-sick being a very crude. Oh, yes. That's also a possibility. But moving on, <laughs> a different remedy for these problems. Again... Of the black ivy, first, three berry bunches, next five, then seven, then nine, then eleven, then thirteen, then fifteen, then seventeen, then nineteen, then twenty-one. Give them so, according to the days, to be drunk in wine. So basically, each day, give them a bottle of wine with two more bunches of berries than the previous day. Until you go all the way from three berry bunches to 21 berry bunches. Okay. If the man have fever also, give thou him the little grains of the ground ivy in hot water to drink. This same is good for a loin sick man. Okay. More than one use for this stuff. Again, give him to drink earth gall sodden in wine. Again, boil betony in wine. Give him that to drink. A salve and a plaster for milt pain... Work it up of honey and of vinegar, add meal, as in, like, 
cornmeal. Mm-hmm. And linseed and barley groats and seed of March. That's March the plant, not March the month. It ends with an E, no capital letter. March. Makes sense. Lay on and smear with this. Add also blossoms of dry wormwood. And that's the end of our uh, spleen instructions. Well, there we go. So, if your spleen is too big because you ate apples, these are many ways to fix it. There we are. (laughs) An apple a day might keep the doctor away, but more than one apple a day can cause spleen problems. Apparently. There we go. All right. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Oh my god, here's a fun... uh, Okay, we need to not get distracted on the history of Coca-Cola, although... Now that I know how (laughs) wild it is, I encourage everyone to go look it up.